In Jerusalem, AD 30, Jesus died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, and then ascended into heaven. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, giving them power, purpose, and a plan. Out of joy, the church was born. Empowered by the Spirit, Peter gave his first sermon, and 3,000 hearts were transformed. Hearing, receiving, and repenting, the young church walked in unity and garnered praise. Out of joy, the gospel creates community. Peter and John then continued to spread the gospel through preaching and miracles, and the church grew by 5,000. In AD 31, Stephen gave a powerful sermon connecting the Old Testament to Jesus and rebuking the people for their hard hearts. Enraged, the people stoned Stephen, making him the first Christian martyr. Around AD 34, on the road to Damascus, the Lord transformed the heart of Saul, a man who persecuted countless Christians, and Saul became Paul. After this conversion, the gospel continued to spread through the ministries of Paul and Peter. God gave Peter a vision and used him to first reach the Gentiles. In AD 44, King Herod Agrippa I executed the Apostle James and had Peter arrested, but an angel rescued Peter, leading him out of the prison. As the believers were scattered because of persecution, the center of operations for Christianity then turned from Jerusalem to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey. Through their ministry, the church multiplied. In AD 49, an argument arose over whether it was necessary for Gentiles to follow Jewish traditions and customs, particularly circumcision. The Jerusalem Council sent a letter to the Gentiles affirming that circumcision was not a requirement for salvation. In every day and age, the church faces both persecution and praise and needs gospel strengthening. That gospel strengthening takes place by remembering that salvation comes only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Not traditions, not customs, not good works. This is the message that must move forward because the mission doesn't stop. Out of joy, the church multiplies. And so you're caught up in the book of Acts to where we are today. There's a new country song out. Some of you know that that is one of my uh, vices. I like country music. <clears throat> Very little country music tells you the truth about God. So let me just go ahead and own up to that, right? <clears throat> Not good theology in country music. Very rare. However, there's a song out called How Salvation Works, and one line from that song goes like this and actually gets it right. Every sinner has a future, and every saint has a past. What makes that statement true is the fact that, as we just heard in the video and as we've been learning throughout the book of Acts, salvation is by God's grace. Amen? And because salvation is by grace... Therefore, every sinner, no matter how far away from God you've gone, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, even if you're Saul of Tarsus who said of himself he was the chief of sinners, grace can save you. 
But no matter how good you think you may be, even today, even you, sir, even you, ma'am, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, you have a past. That is to say, you at one point needed to hear the gospel of Jesus. You needed grace. No matter how good you may be today, no matter how relatively good you've been all of your life. Amen, church? Salvation is by grace. We've seen that so clearly in our study of the book of Acts. As we continue today in this study, we've been looking at the book of Acts under this heading. Jesus' gospel gathering for gospel going. What is this book about? It's about the church, that is Jesus' gospel gathering, and it's about the church on mission, the church sent into the world. Jesus' gospel gathering for gospel going. We gather around the gospel that we might go with the gospel to those who have yet to hear it and believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just last week in Philippi, Back in Acts chapter 16, we saw God work mightily to plant a church there with a sure enough mixed up and motley crew, wasn't it? Do you remember the story? We saw uh, three people in particular, some of the first church members of the church at Philippi. We saw Lydia, a religious lady trying to be good enough, but who came to realize that she needed grace because everyone is a sinner in need of a Savior. Then we saw a demon-possessed girl. This gal couldn't have been further from, from Miss Lydia. If it, I mean, it just wouldn't be possible, would it? Someone who was seeking God, praying, trying to be righteous before God, and then a demon-possessed slave girl, fully given over to Satan, not at all seeking after Christ, and clearly needing deliverance. And then finally, we saw a valiant war hero, probably, the Philippian jailer. Back in in that day, oftentimes, war heroes, valiant soldiers who'd served well in the Roman army, when they came to retirement, they would be given the gift of running just a local jail, just the ease of retirement and running a local jail for the Roman government. Most likely, this jailer, Though we're not told in the text if history, if he's anything like it would have been historically speaking, he was most likely a hard and violent, perhaps bitter and, and just plain messed up from all of his inhumane uh, exploits in the Roman army. No telling what he'd seen. No telling what he'd had to do as a leader in the Roman army. And these three people, Lydia, the demon-possessed slave girl, and the Philippian jailer, they were the core of the church there in Philippi. God's salvation is by grace. Matt Chandler says of the, 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 the growth of the church that we see throughout the book of Acts and into the first three centuries of the church, we've already begun to see it there in Philippi. Whole cities began to be transformed by the gospel And in fact, we know historically that by A.D. 350, throughout the Roman Empire, 51% of the empire would proclaim Jesus as Lord. It's probably, would have been something like it would have been, it would be in our nation today. They might not have all been true believers, but it was prevalent. The gospel had, had, had rocked the world of the Roman Empire. The gospel is the power of God 
unto salvation, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And the early church watched the gospel's dynamite power explode heart after heart as they proclaimed Jesus and men and women, boys and girls, were saved from sin and brought into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We're going to be looking this morning at Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses. And we're just going to start reading through the text. We're going to read verse 1, and then we're going to take a, do a little geography lesson uh, right after I get a drink of water. So Acts chapter 17, it'll be on the screen. Luke says, now when they, this is speaking of Paul and Silas and Timothy. Paul and Silas picked up Timothy. We read in, in Acts 16. So the three of them, it says, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And so we've been tracking Paul's second missionary journey. And you'll remember he started over here in Antioch of Syria. He went up to Tarsus and all the way through uh, Cilicia. He, he went back through the towns he'd been to on his first missionary journey, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. And then the Holy Spirit kept him from going either south or north, we saw last Sunday. And he ended up going as far west as he could go to Troas. And there he had a vision, and he got on a boat and went across over to Macedonia to the city of Philippi. And you see from Philippi then, he travels west along the coast, uh, inland a little bit, to Thessalonica, and as we'll read in just a few minutes, then on to Berea, just to the the west of that. So that kind of gives you an idea of where things are. He's in Greece, modern day. And so he's in Thessalonica, and in verse 2 it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, And not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It's amazing what money will fix, isn't it? The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when, they'd arrived, when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Same thing they'd just done in Thessalonica. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, 
they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The question I want to ask you this morning as we think about Paul and Silas and Timothy's work in Thessalonica and in Berea is this. Could it be said of us, are we... Did you hear how they described these men? Are we turning the world upside down? Are we guilty of that? Has anyone ever said of you, of me, of East L.J. Baptist Church, that bunch is turning the county upside down? You see, here's the way we can do that. We will turn our world upside down when the foundational motivation of our lives is the good news of Jesus. You know what the secret with with those guys was? They lived and breathed the gospel. Their whole existence was about the gospel. The early church lost everything, gave up everything for the sake and the cause of Christ. And we'll turn our world upside down when we find that the foundational motivation of our lives is the good news of Jesus. Can I ask you what the foundational motivation of your life is today? What is it that makes you tick? What is it that moves you on a Monday morning? Why do you get up and do what you do? I want you to notice from this text the following three ways in which the gospel was seen, is seen here to be the foundational motivation in the lives of Paul and Silas and Timothy. First of all, notice with me the priority of the gospel in their lives. The reason they could turn the world upside down, the reason they did turn the world upside down, was that the foundation of their lives, they were motivated by the gospel, the priority of their lives was the gospel itself. They simply lived for the task Jesus had given all of his followers. Do you remember what he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Are you here today and the Spirit of God lives in you? Raise your hand. If you're a believer in Christ, he lives in you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So if he's in you, what else have you received? Power. For what? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Paul and Silas and Timothy and the early church, they just believed that was true. And they just went out and lived that way in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and and, and to the ends of the earth. This was their life's priority. Chuck Swindoll says, if we put first things first and we get second things thrown in, But if we put second things first, then we lose both first and second things. How many times have you seen that prove true in your own life? How many times have we seen that prove true in our own own personal service to the Lord Jesus? Amen. 
Well, check it out at Thessalonica. See the priority of the gospel in their lives at Thessalonica in verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. The gospel is Paul's priority. He, he gets to Thessalonica. He's not there for any other reason. He's not there to see the sights. He's not there to visit people. He is there to preach the gospel. So for three, three Sabbaths in a row, he goes to the synagogue. And he unfolds the Old Testament scriptures. He expounds the Old Testament scripture to these Jews there in the synagogue. And he shows them, perhaps from passages like Isaiah 53, the Christ, the Messiah that we're expecting, he must be the suffering servant. He must die and on the third day be raised again. And here's what I'm here to tell you, Thessalonican brothers of mine, you, you Jews here in Thessalonica, I'm here to tell you this Messiah has come. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he is the Christ. Trust him. The priority of the gospel in their lives. Paul was just doing here, Paul and Silas and Timothy, what Paul would later write about as he wrote back to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. He's looking back on the first time he was there with them, the first time that he took the gospel to the church at Corinth. And he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling, and, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. I didn't come telling you something you, you, would, you would likely be able to, to buy into, something that, that was plausible, that made human sense. But rather, my message was in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Salvation is not about human philosophy and a, somebody having a better way than someone else to think about life. Salvation is about God come to man to save man from himself and from his sin. Salvation is about the power of God in Jesus Christ, Christ and him crucified. And Paul said, all I wanted to know, all I wanted to talk about when I was with you was Christ and him crucified, the priority of the gospel in their lives. Is the gospel, is it on your tongue? Is it that close in every situation you find yourself in, every, every relationship, every meeting you have? Are you ready with the word of the gospel, Christ and him crucified? Well, we see the priority of the gospel in their lives at Berea down in verses 10 and 11, they get to Berea, you, you kind of get the picture, they got run out of Thessalonica, we'll look at that in a minute. They come to Berea, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they did what they always did, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews, isn't this interesting? 
were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Just a quick aside. The Bereans would have been folks committed to Sunday school. Amen, church? They were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Not just Sunday school. They got their Bible out every day and studied the word of God. But they were checking what Paul was saying by the word of God. They would have probably shown up on Sunday night when the pastor says, here tonight we're going to do a Bible study and I'm going to show you how I got my Sunday morning message. They would have been there to see is this stuff Chad's saying on Sunday morning, is it, is it supported by the Word of God? This was the Spirit, and these were the people, Paul said, they were more noble than the ones at Thessalonica. Are you of this noble heart? Well, you see, it's just a given. Christ's followers are to have an impact on their world, amen? We are to turn our world upside down. Paul described how this works over in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16, when he said of himself and those who took the gospel uh, all over the world with him, we, and by the way, it's true of every believer, the Spirit of God lives in you, this is true of you, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. And then Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? How can we do this? How can we be the fragrance of Christ, the aroma of Christ? Think of it, he says. We can't do this in our own strength. And yet we've been made to be the very fragrance and aroma of Jesus in this world. You know what, if you name the name of Christ, you smell like something to the world. And that something relates to Jesus. You either smell good for Jesus or you stink for Jesus. Is that simple enough? If we name the name of Christ and, and, and people know we name the name of Christ, then we either, we either waft a lovely aroma by the way we live and speak and, and witness of who he is. Or by the way we live and don't speak of who he is. We stink. Now, the, the flip side of that is some are being saved. As they smell the fragrance of Christ, some are perishing, right? We see that all throughout the book, book of Acts. We'll talk about it even in a minute. So far, we've already seen some being saved. We've already seen some rejecting the gospel. Thessalonica and Berea. And so it is for us. We will turn our world upside down when the foundational motivation of our lives is the good news of Jesus. You see, the way that works is if that's what's deepest in your heart, if that's what's most precious to your heart, if that's what drives you, then out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said, right? Guard your heart, the proverb says, for out of it, out of the heart, spring all of the issues of life. In other words, everything you do bubbles out of your heart. And if the gospel's got your heart and your heart is embracing and clinging to the gospel, 
than everything you do will bleed the gospel. Secondly, this morning, notice not just the priority priority of the gospel in their lives. Notice the prize of the gospel. The prize of the gospel in their lives. I'm thinking here not of the ultimate prize, not of that future prize that Scripture talks of sometimes, but I'm thinking of their reward on earth. And, and, and what was Paul and Silas and Timothy's reward on earth? It was to see others come to know Jesus. Don't you know that delighted them? Don't you know that's what they live for? Our mission here at East L.J. Baptist is to spread our enjoyment of the beauty of Christ to the world. To our neighbors, to our family, to our community, to our state, our nation, and to the ends of the earth. We enjoy the beauty of Christ, amen? We've seen him. We are captivated by him. And we exist not just to sit around and hang out with each other, but we exist to Stoke the fires of our enjoyment of Jesus so that we're motivated to go out and spread our enjoyment. C.S. Lewis who said that a joy is only fulfilled when shared, right? Isn't there there something more joyful about whatever it is you take joy in when you have the opportunity to tell somebody about that thing which you take joy in, amen? This is true. There's no greater joy than watching and helping someone come to enjoy Jesus by simple faith like we do. We see this issue of the prize of the gospel in their lives in verse 4 at Thessalonica. It says in some of them, some of those there in the, in the synagogue at Thessalonica, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Paul preached the gospel. Paul reasoned with them from scriptures about, about scripture, about, about the Messiah in general, that he must suffer and die and be raised the third day. And then he said, Jesus of Nazareth is him. And many believed. This was the prize of the gospel in their lives. They lived for that kind of eternal fruit, Jesus would say. Jesus said, you didn't call me, I called you. And I called you that you might bear fruit, even everlasting fruit, and that you might have fruit abundant. This is why we're here. Then over in Berea, same thing happens. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. This is after they did what? They poured over the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. And what happened? They got convinced it was real. They saw in Isaiah 53, a suffering servant as Israel's Messiah. They saw the Messiah of Israel to be the Savior who would come and live in our place and die in our place that we might be counted righteous before a holy God and forgiven of all our transgressions so that we might be those of whom it said there is therefore now no condemnation. 
Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were just daily living out the Great Commission, weren't they? Jesus had said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The prize for Paul and Silas and Timothy, the prize in this life of the gospel for the early church was seeing men, women, boys, and girls come to know Jesus as Savior, come to embrace Jesus as as precious as they did, to enjoy him in all of his saving glory. Is this prize what you're living for? You see, every other prize you pursue, and, and, and just a quick aside, you are running after something, period. You got your eye fixed on a prize in this life. Every day you get up and you run for a reward today. Not just in the sweet by and by, but you pursue something in this world to satisfy and, 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 and to find joy in. Every other prize will leave you thirsty and unsatisfied because the Bible tells us that every other pursuit is all about you and the things of this world. And as the prophet would put it, They're nothing but broken cisterns in the end that can hold no water. And when you finally get a hold of it and you go to take a great big draw on that broken cistern, you just get cotton mouth because there's nothing for your thirst. Only when seeing men, women, boys, and girls come to Jesus, when that's your prize, when Jesus himself... The fountain of living water is your prize. Will you have satisfaction? Ray Ortland says this, the Bible encourages us as the church to look for more conversions, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, for more joy, Acts 8, verse 8, more impact, Acts 19, verse 20, more glorious outcomes, but we can also expect more trouble. We can expect both more openness and more controversy. But no one is static. No one is not responding to the gospel. You see, if we are living motivated by the gospel, if we are maintaining the priority of the gospel in our lives, if we really see the prize of the gospel as winning people to Jesus, then we're going to be telling the story, amen? Hello? Can y'all hear me? I'm trying awful hard with this voice of mine. Y'all didn't go to sleep, did you? All right, I just got to make sure we're tracking along. And if we're speaking the message, here's what you can know about the people you talk to about Jesus. They're not static. I had the opportunity to talk to somebody this week about Jesus and share the gospel just as plainly as I knew how. And basically tell this, this fellow, I just was able to talk to him and say, listen, There's a lot of stuff going on in your life, but here's the bottom line. And unless you get this right, unless you deal with you and God, you know, we can can modify some behavior. We can kind of clean up some things. We can try to band-aid, you know, fatal wounds in your heart. But unless you trust Jesus as your Savior, 
unless you know that you have peace with God and all of your sins are forgiven, unless you're in a place where you can call him Father, then that Father can't heal your life like you're wanting. And in that moment, I don't know which way his heart went, but he did not remain static. He either moved toward Jesus or he moved away from Jesus. He either opened his heart and his ears to the truth of the gospel or he shut his heart and his ears. But the gospel is the power of God into salvation and it won't be ignored. You see, we will turn our world upside down when the foundational motivation of our lives is the good news of Jesus. We've seen the priority of the gospel in these men's lives. We've seen the prize of the gospel in their lives. These are two of the things that enabled them to turn the world upside down because the gospel was the foundational motive in their heart. But notice thirdly, and finally this morning, the price of the gospel in their lives. The price of the gospel. Chad, I wish you'd left that one out. Priority was bad enough. Prize was kind of exciting, but price? Yeah, the price. In Philippi, if you remember back to last week, we saw Paul and Silas beaten with rods, the text says, and put in the inner prison and put in stocks. As I was studying this week, I came across uh, on on that particular verse there in Acts 16, some some commentary about about what that might have meant that I didn't share with you last week. But basically, Paul and Silas beaten with rods, that's pretty clear, right? Take sticks and just beat the snot out of them. But, but put in the inner prison, what's that all about? Well, it, was, it probably had to do with the deepest, lowest part of the prison. Probably in the middle and down low. You do understand that in this, at this particular time, they didn't have advanced septic systems. And so all of the stuff ran down. And in the inner prison, it would flow through to an outlet in the bottom of the very bottom of the prison. And so surrounded by human excrement, Paul and Silas were chained, but not just chained. They were in stocks. The price of the gospel in their lives. Well, it wasn't quite as bad at Thessalonica, verse 5, but the Jews were jealous Jealous of Paul and Silas and Timothy, jealous of the attention they were getting there at the synagogue and taking some wicked men of the rabble. Y'all know those guys? They're they're something in Gilmer County. Everybody knows them. You know, they're they're in the neighborhood, right? They stirred up the wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob. They set the whole city in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason. Sorry, Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. That's where they were hanging out at Jason's house. He, he was believing the message preached. Perhaps he was a local Jew there that was in the synagogue as Paul was reasoning from Scripture. And when they could not find them, that is Paul and Silas, Timothy, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Can I just ask you, are you saying day by day there's another king? 
Jesus. It's true in our world today. We worship one king. One king, the, the king Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So he gets to Thessalonica. They've just been beaten back in Philippi. Uh, they've just been down in the depths of the prison. Now they're basically, they basically have to run for their life because a whole mob comes after them. And then their associates, people that, that, that uh, those that were listening to them, those that perhaps, I believe, had, had believed the gospel, Jason and his household, they get in trouble. You know, sometimes that when you're a faithful witness for Jesus, it will bring suffering in the life, not just of yourself, but someone else. As they believe the gospel, sometimes early on in their Christian life, trouble will come, right? Remember Paul and, and Barnabas had told uh, the churches early on in the first missionary journey, and through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. They told them right up front. Well, just be, be clear. Sometimes if you're a faithful witness, you will bring trouble into someone's life because they trust Jesus who the world hates. And it may be that they're more opposed and more directly opposed than you are. And such was the case here in Thessalonica. The price of the gospel in their lives. Look at what happened in Berea. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up crowds. Remember, they, 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 they started a riot. They went to Jason's house trying to find these guys. Well, they traveled over to Berea. I mean, they're fuming mad that these guys who turned the world upside down were messing up their neck of the woods with the gospel. So verse 14 says, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. The price of the gospel in our lives. But catch it, Paul and Silas and Timothy were willing to pay these prices. Why? How could you go through beatings and be put in stocks? Run out of two towns. Have your life threatened so you had to run for your life. Again, it's because of the gospel. As Paul would put it in 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul tells Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. I want you to remember the thing you can never forget, Timothy, the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. What's Paul saying? Don't you ever lose sight of the priority in all of life, the gospel. Don't take your eyes off the main thing. Keep this simple message, Timothy, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Keep that gospel front and center. As I do, and for which I'm suffering, I'm in chains like a criminal. But then listen to what he says. But the word of God is not bound. Hallelujah. Therefore, Paul said, I endure everything. For the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. By the way, that verse proves my, my second point, amen? What was Paul's prize? To see the elect of God come to know the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. They say, Chad, what does that mean about the elect? Well, here's, let me just make, let's make it real simple. We can all agree on this. Here's the theology of election that we can all agree on. When Paul talks about the elect, he's talking about those who would, who would come to believe in Jesus, right? Whatever you believe about how they got to be elect and what that means, here's the deal. Paul's saying, I am motivated. I endure all things for the sake of those who will believe the gospel so that through me they can hear the gospel and believe the gospel. And it's worth whatever I have to go through. It's worth whatever price I have to pay so that the elect of God, those who, when they hear it, believe it, can hear and believe and be saved by the Lord Jesus. The price of the gospel in their lives. They were willing to pay the price. Why? Because it was through paying that price of suffering, that price of imprisonment, that price of beating, that price of rejection and having to run for their lives, it was through them paying that price that the gospel went all over the world and reached the elect who were waiting to hear the truth and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Are we willing to pay the price? Will we endure all things for the sake of the elect. Do we believe that God will save some when the gospel is preached? Do we believe that? Can everyone agree on that? He's promised to do that, right? If that's the case, folks, then it's worth suffering for to get the message there to their ears and in their hearts. And Paul said, look, Timothy, you just don't forget the gospel. <laughs> I'm in chains for it. But, but Timothy, here's the deal. It's worth it all. The price is, 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 is worth being paid. I'll pay the price. Because whatever I have to endure, it's worth it when the elect hear and believe the gospel. You see, folks, suffering, as Brian Tab writes, suffering is central to spreading the gospel. You've heard me say that before. You've seen me, you've heard me point it out in Scripture and show you in the Word of God. And in fact, as we walk through the book of Acts, have we not seen it proven true? God consistently appoints adversity and opposition to advance Jesus' mission in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and under the ends of the earth. Christians in Acts, how do they respond? They rejoice and sing when suffering comes because their hope is not fixed on human approval or comfortable circumstances, but on a surpassingly great heavenly reward. In the book of Acts, we see a group of joyful, gospel-speaking, suffering followers of King Jesus who turned the world upside down. They feared God more than people. They maintained hope and adversity because they believed in the resurrection. Now, here's, here was Paul's perspective. 
Do you really believe this? Do you really believe that because Jesus rose from the dead, there is absolutely nothing you have to fear? That nobody can really hurt you. Do you really believe the words of Jesus when he said that that they, that they they won't hurt a hair on your head? You say, does that mean, that means when trouble comes, he gets me out of it, right? No. It means he'll protect your soul all the way, even if your body dies. The Bible's clear, there'll be martyrs. In fact, God's got a number of martyrs, a set number. There'll be X number. God knows the number before the world ends. Who die for Christ. But you know what? Those who kill him won't, won't harm a hair on the heads of their souls. They're safe forever. Paul's saying, what can man do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God's loved us like he has in Christ, if he indwells us, if we're as already, if we're as good as already with him in heaven, what you going to do? Kill me? Bring it? For me to live Christ, to die is gain. But what I want to know from you this morning, is that real for you? You see, if it was true for us, we would speak the gospel. We wouldn't be shy with it. We wouldn't wouldn't be distracted by other things. We would believe that to the point that it moved us to talk about Jesus. We will turn our world upside down when the foundational motivation of our lives is the good news of Jesus. You can figure that out by looking at your priorities. What's the priority in your life? You can figure that out by examining what you consider a prize in this life. What's the good stuff for you? in your life here on this earth. You can figure out if it's the gospel driving you by looking at the price you're willing to pay to get that message out. What does it take to shut you up for Jesus? Let's pray together. Father,